The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, if you recall at the beginning of the year, long, long time ago, I mean, I can't even remember what was like back in the beginning of the year. We've talked about, uh, with Stephanie Zhu, the year ahead in China-Africa tech. Now, in January, when we spoke with Stephanie, we were coming off of uh, 2019 that was flush with cash. If you recall, about a quarter of a billion dollars of Chinese venture capital money was flowing into Africa, uh, mostly into Nigeria, into the fintech space. And coming into 2020, we thought at that time, back then, that there was going to be just a huge ramp up in Chinese tech engagement on the continent. Well, because of COVID-19 and the economic slowdown that's happened, that really has not taken place, to say the least. And now, in so many ways, we're at a crossroads. Yes, in, in many in many ways, I think African countries are, are facing very stark choices that they didn't think they would be facing in 2019. Um, this is not only because of the, the global crunch, financial crunch related to the pandemic, um, and therefore, you know, also making a lot of, of external investors quite risk-averse. But then also the increasing tensions between the US and China, which is forcing um, African countries to choose size on a whole bunch of tech issues, not least on the, the future of companies like TikTok. Well, there's one company in particular that highlights this trend, and that is Opera and its division, Opay. Now, this company was one of the hottest startups on the scene. Last November, the company closed a Series B financing round for $120 million. And what was interesting about it is that it included a number of very, very high-profile Chinese venture capital firms. Uh, we're talking about Sequoia China, Gaozhong, uh, the e-commerce logistics giant Meituan Dianping, uh, later, the company then raised an additional $50 million, so uh, $170 million for a fintech startup, by no means the record in West Africa, but certainly one of the largest ones. If you recall, uh, some of you may remember the U.S. credit card company Visa. Uh, they invested $200 million in the Nigerian fintech startup Interswitch. Uh, and then prior to that, fintech startup Pompey closed a $40 million investment round uh, led by the Chinese phone company Transin. But Opay in so many ways was different and continues to be different. This was a company born in 2016. Uh, back then, uh, Beijing Kunlin acquired Opera. Some of you remember, may remember Opera as one of the really most innovative web browsers. Uh, back then, uh, in 2016, it was really struggling as Chrome was coming up. And Chinese investor Zhou Yahui, uh, he then bought the company with a company called Beijing Kunlin, and then they listed it on the NASDAQ and raised, oh, about $100, $115 million. Those of you who may hear the name Zhou Yahui and are keeping track of this kind of thing at home, he was also the guy who bought the gay dating app Grindr also in 2016. So interesting little fun fact there. Joe then repositioned the company to focus on Africa, and he turned Opera into the continent's second most popular mobile browser, and he built a whole suite of services from food delivery to ride hailing, 
and even advertising. But much of that came crashing down earlier this month in July when the company shut down almost all of its services except Opay, its mobile payments system. So let's find out what happened to Opay and to Opera as a whole. I am thrilled to be able to have on the program for the first time uh, Abu Bakr Idris, who is a journalist at the Nigerian tech news website Tech Cabal, based in Lagos. Uh, in many ways, he has written the definitive first draft of history on what happened at Opay in a recent article on the Tech Cabal website, how Chinese tech billionaire Yahui Zhou is calling the shots at Opay. Abu Bakar, thank you so much for taking the time and good morning to you from Lagos. Thank you, Eric, and thanks for having me on the show. Well, let's start right away. Just tell us what happened to Opay. Give us a little bit of the background. This was a star that was burning very bright in 2019 and in so many ways fizzled out in 2020. Why did that happen? Interestingly, Opay's, Opay's um, origin and what it's meant to do in the market is to operate as a fintech company. And to be frank, it hasn't really deviated from that vision. It's still a fintech company and it has been operating its payment business in the Nigerian market for the last two years with very impressive growth record. But in order to achieve the growth that he has pulled off over the last, uh, over since 2019, it has had to resort to developing a couple of verticals that helped it to gain visibility in the Nigerian market. So, like you talked rightly about um, the ride hailing vertical, the food delivery business, and also the car hailing business. All of these things helped it to gain the right visibility in the Nigerian market where there are already a lot of very important and powerful payment companies like Paga and First Money, which is operated by one of Nigeria's largest uh, commercial banks. But with Opay and when it entered the market and with how it, it planned to grow in the Nigerian market, it enabled it to gain visibility, like I said, in the Nigerian market. So in April 2019, just before the whole aggressive growth strategy kicked in, the company said it reported around maybe 100,000 monthly active users transacting on its platform and using its mobile money agents across the country. But a year later, it has moved from 100,000 customers to 5 million. And that, that is a very stunning growth. And I looked at some of the statistics and I cannot um, uh, confidently say that a lot of other companies in the market are reporting that number as their own monthly active users. So it's quite an interesting growth that they have achieved. And judging by the statistics that are also coming out from the Nigerian authorities, like the Nigerian Interbank Settlement Scheme, which handles and keeps track of all mobile money transactions, the volume and the value of transactions in the country is still growing. And OPE claims to be doing maybe around uh, 60% of the total volume and value of transactions in the country. So as a payment business, Ope is doing pretty okay. It doesn't have too much of a struggle in that direction. But uh, um, Yaoi's vision for the company is not just to, you know, um, the, the, the payment business as a whole is a volume-driven business. So you have to have uh, you have to have you have to drive the volume in the market to be able to command the revenue that will be able to have make this company have a more important valuation. And if you look at Yaoi's history and the companies that he has put money into, the goal is to put these companies on the stock market. It's a very important vision for him that he has pulled off at 
Oprah and he also tried to do that at Grindr, the gay dating app that eventually sold for over um, $600 million. Now, he's trying to make that same move at OP. And in order to do that, he has to move and give that company the right, um, should I say, proposition in the market. Give it the right optics, the right visibility and the right um, market financials to be able to pull off a very interesting IPO, which is like the long-term goal that he has for OP in the Nigerian market. And in order to do that in Nigeria, he has had to develop a couple of verticals. And um, yeah, I, I think there were talks about him constantly um, thinking that, oh, the Nigerian market could be as big as the Indonesian market when it comes to bike hailing. And he was so very on course with that vision until the Nigerian, the Lagos authorities, that's Nigeria's largest, Nigeria's biggest city, eventually in, put in place regulatory controls that, you know, cut down on the growth of bike hailing in the state. Now, when that happened, the whole vision that he had for bike hailing in Nigeria, it kind of went away. It just, you know, disappeared. There was no real growth happening anymore that he saw because he had always you know, compared it with the Indonesian market. And when that happened, all of that vision went away. So he, he sort of like had a different understanding of how the Nigerian market was going. And while fintech was already solid, the rest of the verticals began to look shaky to him. The bike hailing business was already shaky. He just, you know, put that on pause. The ride hailing business was severely impacted by the pandemic and the lockdown measures that eventually forced a lot of people into their homes. So it didn't really seem like, oh, it's a viable business anymore. And when you look at the ride hailing business as a whole, Uber is also facing a lot of heat with that business model. It's now have to diversify into logistics. So for Opay to continue operating with that model in Nigeria, it, you know, it needed a lot of revision. And they eventually just decided to put that whole plan on pause so like that that's that was really what i saw when i spoke with company um, company um, the staff at the company who felt like oh the chairman was pulling his weight with his own vision and making adjustments at the company that would help the valuation and proposition of the company in the long term i think that was pretty much what he has been doing like trying to strengthen the company and put it on the right um market trajectory for you know an a, a, a future ipo and in order to do that he has had to strengthen the company in markets like um like eventually he started off a a an e-commerce venture at op where you have um the old mall and the old trade business which which he launched quietly in march and what is interesting there is that these two businesses have different directions originally one is a, where Omol is a B2C business, while All Trade is a B2B business. But eventually, um, with the way he's viewing the company and how he operates, his own has his own um, business philosophy. These two companies eventually now have to, you know, they they eventually overlapped. Like they had the same organizational vision, but eventually they were competing amongst themselves. And eventually, whoever emerges on top, after a while. Is the company that would get to um to, to to have a longer plan at op so eventually what i heard from staff at the company and some other insiders they said all trade was performing far better than omar 
and eventually Yahweh just uh, collapsed Old Trade Old Mall into Old Trade, but kept the Old Trade Old Mall branding because it had already gone a little bit further in the market. So that was pretty much how he viewed the market. He saw that okay, the finance, the fintech side of of um, Opay's business was strong, it was solid, and it had already gained a very 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 strong footing in that business, but. In order to bolster their bolster their their, their long term proposition as a for a, a stock market exit or listing, he had to develop other parts of the businesses, and that led them to ride hailing, bike hailing, food delivery, and all of that. But now, with the way the market is structured, especially how it has been impacted by the pandemic, he has had to revise all that he knows about the Nigerian market, and eventually he pushed into um e-commerce with the launch of these other businesses but the way he has done it at, at um so far he has done it with the chinese way of doing things which is interesting like putting your own company your own leadership in the company against each other to make them achieve the right goals that 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 is pretty much how he has been running the company since the start of the year it's very interesting you talked about the chinese management style and you open your story by uh, referring to the fact that the decision was made in Beijing uh, at uh, long before it was actually delivered in uh, Nigeria. Talk to us a little bit about this Chinese management, the decision, and how the company is run and, and what you were referring to. Yao is not based in Nigeria. At least I haven't heard that he's operating from Nigeria. The, the understanding is that he's operating as chairman of OP from Beijing in China. So leadership decisions are always usually made from there and communicated down to the Nigerian office, which eventually follows up with whatever has been agreed upon. Which is not unusual for international companies. I mean, Visa is not exactly. run in Nigeria. It's run in California. Star Times is also run out of Beijing. So that by itself is not exceptional, right? Right. What What was actually interesting here is um, his, um, should I say, um, putting the, the executives, like having some sort of like internal competitive, um, would I call it games? Like the way he did with O-Trade, everybody has their own KPIs and their own targets that they have to meet. But with the way it's done, it's like a lot of things are experimental, like for him. You know, like regular Nigerian businesses do not have the finances, the financials or the finances rather to be able to, take on a kind of experimental um, um, pursuit, like operate two different biz two businesses that have the same vision and then have them led, being led by two different people and give them resources to pursue a, a um, two different paths. And then at the end of the day, you then decide that which one is good, which one is better, and then you scrap the other one. Like many Nigerian businesses do not have or cannot afford to take this type of decisions, but he can do that. As a billionaire and somebody who has helped the company raise significant funding, he has had to. He has done that with um, all trade and all more. And then the way decisions are made, like the the scrapping of the the suspension of the other verticals. I mean, it came very swift. It wasn't like it. They were not discussing these things internally before then. They, I, I had an interview with um, Opace country manager and I did not get the hint. Like this was a month before the official announcement. I did not get the hint that there was actually a plan to suspend these verticals. So it came out of the blue. 
and the memo was passed down, the information leaked, and everybody had to do the needful uh, with how the you know with how the bosses at the top had made it to seem. So there was there there is a kind of um, um, structure within the company that leadership decisions and the activities and all the um, business plans have a should I say a top to bottom approach, and it's usually. Um, should I say there's usually an order before any other thing can happen like um, uh, according to somebody who I spoke with also at the company he said whenever companies go to uh, whenever Yahweh's portfolio companies go over to meet him in China in Beijing at that meeting uh, I think he said it happens in October at that meeting in October companies actually get shut down right there at the spot at that meeting so he brings that kind of idea into the Nigerian market where um, businesses and um, business ideas can start up out of the blue and they can get shut down just as quickly. Not a lot of Nigerian companies can do that. Not a lot of Nigerian companies have that um, that philosophy or the finances to be able to make that kind of experiment or gamble. But he can do that. And the Chinese companies in the Nigerian market can do that. And there is also the fact that when layoffs are happening and when businesses have been, you know, um, put on hold, the, um, you know, layoffs happen and a lot of other things happen. So the decision making process is kind of swift and the implication of how these decisions are taken is also swift. And for Nigerian, for regular Nigerian companies led by Nigerians, um, things are taken more more should i say in a more structured not really structured but in a more sentimental approach where you are thinking oh how do you pass the news down to these people how would it affect you know their livelihoods and all of that but for these other companies um decisions are made in a more swift manner yeah that's the famous than, china speed that uh, yes. the that the culture is very very famous for and different than in africa and in, in many parts of the world when i've worked in china uh, for a long time, that that difference in speed. And I think, Cobus, that is definitely one of the cultural differences between, say, the United States and many African countries, where where people move again with blistering speed. Yes, completely. And um, Abu Bakr, what was the reaction in, in Nigeria when the news came through? When the when when the news came through, so here's the thing: Opie has had a narrative problem for a while now. Ever since they raised a lot of money, there has been a very high expectation about. The company so anything less than that has been interpreted as problems and when the government eventually um, um, banned bike hailing in lagos in february on february 1st people immediately assumed that the company would would um, get shut down that oh bike hailing was its number one driver and now bike hailing has been scrapped so you know the company will go out of business in a couple of months, which is a misunderstanding of what OP actually does in the market. You know, it's a fintech, not a transportation company. So there has been that narrative problem that has been affecting the company for a while. And eventually when this news came out that it was scrapping, it was suspending its um, non-fintech verticals, that sentiment came up again. So people were like, yes, we said it, that because the government scrapped by Kaden in February, now this company is eventually scrapping its own bike hailing business, its um, ride hailing business, and all of that. So there was that um, misunderstanding that the ban was what was affecting the company even in June. 
So there was, on the one hand, there was that misconception about what OP is doing in the market, and that has affected understanding about you know when this company eventually suspended its non-fintech verticals. On the other hand, the more informed crowd understand that um, the company is making a business decision, and they there's they even with that in that business crowd or the more informed crowd, there is a disagreement on what this move actually means or represents. I mean, there are a couple of people who looked at it and said, okay, um, the company is actually having a a business problem, a business model problem. You cannot bleed scale your way through and, and achieve growth in the Nigerian market in this manner. You can't burn cash this way. I think it's a sustainable approach. So there was that view among um, the business or should I say the more enlightened people about people that were more enlightened about how OP works. But there was also the other crowd that simply understood that um, suspending this business or these businesses is not a very huge deal for OP. Um, so they also they realized that, okay, um, bike hailing was not a major driver of their financial transactions, but it was an important visibility scheme for them. So when the decision was made to suspend the services, there was a a mixed understanding in the markets. That that that's what I would say for that. Very quickly before we move on to other topics, because we want to get to uh, get your opinions on Huawei, TikTok, Transin, and some of the other China tech issues in Africa. What's the very quickly again? What's the big takeaway? The lesson learned from Opay's experience in Nigeria. Uh I think the most important lesson from OP's experience in Nigeria is that Nigerian companies are undervalued. Like um, they are undervalued, and the market is challenging. in In that sense, like w- what I mean in that sense is, when OP came into the market and put in a significant funding for its own payment businesses, for its own payment business, other payment businesses began to look more attractive. I mean, the original business model of OP was um, mobile money and having physical agents all around the country. And then eventually, it latched on to the digital approach, and that has helped it to gain more customers across the country. So other payment companies in the mobile money operating space have also been making the same adjustments and the same growth trajectory in recent times. And... When you when you look at how they've been doing it, it has also helped. Like when you have a company that has $170 million in funding, every other company in that space begins to become more attractive to investors. They begin to say, okay, so what exactly is this company aiming for? And what are the other players in this market that we can also target? So that kind of like improves the proposition for other companies in the payment business alongside OP. And then... Um, on the other side, you begin to realize the um, business reward challenges of operating a business in Nigeria. Like um, OP has the funding, but the funding alone is not going to pull off all the magic. There are still a lot of challenges in the Nigerian market that companies would need to fix and that the companies would need the government support to fix. So that those are the two key takeaways from the OP experience. Let's turn our attention to some other China-Africa tech issues, and probably right now there's none that's bigger than Huawei, Uh, in part because Huawei is encountering real difficulties in France and the United Kingdom, where the governments have decided to ban 
uh, Huawei in their core networks and using their 5G technology. Obviously, the United States has mounted a global campaign against the Shenzhen-based company. In Africa, though, it's a very, very different story. Huawei is deeply embedded in the telecom infrastructure. Uh, tell, talk to us a little bit about the perceptions of Huawei now, and are the the efforts by the United States having any impact that you can see in a place like Nigeria and elsewhere in Africa? Um, straight up, for now, I haven't really seen any real effects from the U.S. activity on Huawei in Nigeria. So far, um, in fact, no real activity in terms of, you know, no real effect on their business on the continent. I think in uh, a few months ago, they actually expanded their their um, data center businesses in Kenya and South Africa. And there's also a plan to expand it to Nigeria. On the telecom business, no real impact also. They are still very much embedded into the system, into the into the market. And everybody pretty much considers either, either them or the other players like Ericsson, ZTE, another Chinese company, and um, not and the other the other companies that 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 provide the other vendors in the market. So in there is no real effect from what has been happening globally on Huawei's business in Africa from what I've seen so far. Where are we standing in terms of the 5G rollout in Africa compared to the rest of the world? I saw that um, that the UK, some some um, commentators in the UK said that, that the decision to take Huawei out of the game in the UK is pushing back 5G rollout by maybe two or two to three years. Um, in Johannesburg, 5G is already, you know, kind of commercially available. One can just simply like have it ordered for your, for your house. And that is on the back of Huawei equipment. Um, so like, how, how is it standing on the continent? and how is that how is that changing the rollout in africa versus the rest of the world the first thing is broadband in africa is still pretty much a 2g affair like um a very high pro- um, percentage of african mobile subscribers are still are still on 2g network um the the, the rollout of 5g is still it's interesting and it's important for the future but from the telco perspective not a lot of them are really on board in that uh, uh, to, to 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 roll that out yet because the real use cases of 5G is not really you know um, I would I won't use the word compatible but the Niger- the African market doesn't really have a strong use case for 5G yet I mean we're talking about smart cities and connected devices and all of that for now um, the uh, according to um, the CEO of MTN Group is like. 3G is still more relevant to the African market. And that is true to an extent. In Nigeria, for instance, many of the telcos or the four major telcos are still building out and expanding their 4G capabilities. Now, this is an effort they started five years ago when MTN rolled out 4G, Etzalat rolled out 4G, and um, Glow Mobile rolled out 4G. Etel in Nigeria rolled out its own 4G plant in 2018 and it has been expanding it very quickly so i think for now many of them many of these telecom companies are still pretty much focused on deepening their 4g penetration on the continent and switching people from 2g to 3g 4g services on the continent so in terms of 5g rollout uh, there is a gsm report that predicts that 5G penetration in Africa would still be less than maybe 10% in Niger- in Africa by 2025. So it's not something that 
all telcos are strongly pursuing at the moment but it's something that they would love to do but for the meantime their main focus is still on expanding and developing their 4g 3g broadband capabilities on the continent and if you look across the markets that many of these telcos are operating that is pretty much the reality many subscribers are still on 2g 2g broadband so they are trying to up adoption of um, 3g and 4g broadband by giving away um, you know smartphone devices that are capable of these newer broadband services and they're also um, rolling out their own types of um, cheaper feature phones that are 3g and 4g enabled so so that is where they are right now in terms of 5g um, push they're still not fully committed to it even though they think it's a good one but they want to build out their 4G and 3G capabilities on the continent. I guess the thing that I don't understand right now about Huawei and uh, in Africa is that the concern that the UK had was that if the United States cuts off part of the supply chain that Huawei depends on for some of its the raw materials that it uses to build its chips and some of the, the sophisticated components that go into its products, then the UK would be potentially vulnerable to uh, to being left in the lurch. That would apply also to Africa as well, in part because, again, if 70% of the, and that's one number that circulates, if 70% of the 4G network in Africa has been built by Huawei, and if Huawei is eventually cut off by the United States or potentially cut off by the United States from this vital supply chain, then that could have a devastating impact uh, on a continent that is so dependent on one company. So do you think there's any concern or are African policymakers and telco managers just dismissing those concerns and saying, you know what, we're just going to keep going forward and we'll worry about tomorrow tomorrow? Frankly, so far, many Nigerian, um, many African governments haven't really um, been active in this co- in this whole conversation. Like they've not been putting out statements. They've not made any strategic directions about any of these things yet. Like um, it's still pretty much a a a low key conversation here in Africa because they're not really taking these things in. They're not really following or being active in the debates at the international level. So that 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 kinds of um, it still puts Hawaii in a very um, important position on the continent even though there's the real shock that if this company is eventually phased out of the global supply chain it will be a problem for the african continent but at the mean uh, for for the meantime there is no real conversation about what this would have what this what what the impact this would have on the continent however there is another interesting thing that is going on in the continent at the moment um the open run um Open RAN initial standards that has been developed um, by some telecom um, companies, um, telecom body, um, telecom companies um, association is actually beginning to um, grow or deepen its roots in Africa. Led by a company called Parallel Wireless, they've been and Vodacom, they've been making moves to, you know, um, uh, um, introduce Open RAN on the continent. And what Open RAN does means is that Open RAN reduces the importance of um, of being tied to one vendor, one telecom vendor. So, for instance, the the um, vendor market is dominated by companies like Ericsson, ZTE, Huawei. But with Open RAN, you can free yourselves from 
the for, from from being attached to these companies from being attached to one single vendor so what it does is that it allows a telecom company to be able to use parts and um and and supplies from multiple companies on their own telecom infrastructure so that is what open run does for for telecom companies and it has been one of the strongest approaches to um to reducing the influence of huawei globally I mean, there's a company, the company that I mentioned before, Parallel Wireless, is said that according to their CEO, Steve Papa, he made the mention that he wants to actually reduce um, Huawei's influence in a lot of markets. So he's pushing open run in a couple of countries and helping other companies to, you know, adopt the standard to improve their broadband penetration and to improve their broadband capabilities at a significantly reduced cost so that that if that trend actually picks up on the continent that would spell like a new challenge for huawei in in africa you mentioned vodacom um vodacom and, and alibaba announced last week that they that they're launching the development of a of a new super app in south africa um the idea being that that it's in a similar to, to Chinese models that one would be doing uh, you know, fintech work or, or micropayments and music streaming and checking news and e-commerce and so on, all within the same app. I was wondering what you made of that as a, as a possible model for Africa. So, so the super app model is a very interesting one. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because it will actually shape is actually shaping the future of payments globally. Companies are having to rethink whether um, if um, payment cards are actually, you know, something, the right way to go, virtual cards and all that conversation is happening. I mean, with a super app, you can do much more with just a single app. So it's a very important conversation that's happening. Um, so far for the Alibaba, Alibaba, um, Alipay, Vodacom Payup, um, I haven't really studied it enough. But I know that in the South Africa, the South African market is quite a bit different from most African markets. It's quite different in the sense that um, it's still very, very, it's still, it's quite advanced. Their financial system is very advanced. So there's not been a lot of um, super apps in the South African market. So I can't really say how this would really, you know, shape things in that country. But I do know that. Compared to other African countries, this would be like the first for the South African market. Let's close our discussion looking at other tech trends in Africa. And one that is very important is Transin. And for those of you who are not familiar with Transin and outside of Africa, a lot of people have no idea that Transin is such a dominant player. Uh, they have a suite of brands that include most notably Techno. Uh, and together, they dominate both the feature phone market and the smartphone market. Star Times is the number one, or I think it's the number one, direct TV, satellite TV provider on the continent. Boomplay is a transient product, a joint venture with NetEase. That is the number one by far with 62 million customers uh, for their streaming music service. The list goes on and on about Chinese tech in Africa. Talk to us a little bit about the trends that you see going forward, in part because it's been a difficult year for China-Africa relations. Do you see any of the difficulties that have happened elsewhere in the China-Africa relationship coming over into the adoption of Chinese tech? Uh, so far, no. I don't see a significant impact on... Um, I don't see a significant change. I mean, 
to, for that to happen, African countries will need to change their foreign policies and, you know, put up stronger stances on a number of things from debt to, um, you know, it, they, they would really need to do a lot of work to make sure that they are not just, you know, stonewalling Chinese companies and there's no local um, solutions back home. So I don't really see that changing anytime soon. I still think that Chinese companies and Chinese investments in Africa will continue to grow in the, with the way they've been doing over the last um, one year. So I think I don't really see a significant change in that direction. I still think Chinese apps will remain strong. And there is an interesting thing with the way Chinese apps are moving, particularly transaction-owned products. They have the Easy Buy, they have the Palm Pay, they have um, a, a, another payment company, and Palm Credit for lending. And then they have their other products like the the Boom Play Music, and um, which is which is which they partnered with NetEase in in China to to roll out in Africa. I mean, all these products are strong, and they are to an extent, hyper-local, in the sense that they are, we know that they are owned by Chinese, but we know that the most important the, the most important market for them is Africa. So I don't really see that changing anytime soon. And what about TikTok? Right, TikTok. Wow. TikTok has been growing gradually in, in Africa. There's been, although they have not released statistics for the continent, there has been gradual adoption of the product on the continent i mean i've seen a lot of people put out videos do do short short video content for for that platform but compared to um youtube and facebook i mean there is the high possibility that tiktok will become one of the biggest um um short video or social media platforms on the continent like it may not happen soon but the trend has started and as Africans begin to consume more video content, TikTok is going to become more important and it may eventually displace Facebook in the long term with the way it's growing. And one of the one of the strategies that they've been adopting is to actually partner with influencers on the continent. I think early this year, they came down to the continent, they met a couple of influencers in different markets like in Kenya and I understand that what they are trying to do is, you know, to help these guys to deliver um, better content and to help them gain more visibility on, uh, you know, on the continent. So that that is helping. That is helping them in a significant way, even though we know that monetization is not really an option right now on the platform. But helping these guys to improve their reach, to improve their engagement, to improve their content that they put out is important for brand loyalty and that would like have an effect on people coming in because more people are going to want to see these guys want to watch their videos and engage with it so i think in the short term it's going to keep growing but in the long term that is where the real threat to other services like facebook and youtube will come on board the article is how chinese tech billionaire yahui Zhou is calling the shots at opay it's written by abu bakar idris who's a journalist at the Nigerian tech news website, uh, Tech Cabal. Abu Bakar, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It was absolutely fascinating to hear your insights. Congratulations on an excellent article about Ope. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Pretty much Twitter. My handle is IA Talkspace on Twitter.
IA Talkspace. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. We'll also put a link to his um, excellent article. And uh, we'll love to touch base with you in a few months to get an update on how Chinese tech is doing in Africa. Right. That would be great. I'm open to that. Thank you so much. Kobus, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because as I was listening to Abu Bakr, it's like there's this parallel universe in Europe and the United States and kind of Twitter at a whole. There's this whole freak out over Chinese tech. I mean, TikTok being banned in the United States, the campaign against Huawei. And this is not just actually even in the US and Europe. India is also going through this as well. Here in Vietnam, there's massive concerns. They're not using Huawei on their 5G network. But in Africa, it's a completely different story. Not only is there no concern about about Huawei as 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 much as we can tell, there's a full embrace of Chinese tech. TikTok is making inroads. The fact that the words TikTok may replace Facebook came out of his mouth is an absolutely stunning statement. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's again, two parallel universes uh, on a discussion and a discourse about technology in Africa. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and I think, what, you know, at, at the heart of that, of the division lies the issue that for Africa, really development comes first, you know. Um, so, and particularly um, ICT-related development, it's, the, Africa has so few partners and so so few options in, in, in trying to kind of jumpstart all of this development, you know, in time to, to kind of catch up with its very young population that in a lot of cases, I think they just don't mind so much about the geopolitical issues. Yeah, and also his comments on OPE were very interesting as well and the culture part of it. And boy, Boy, he really touched on the Chinese business culture. This is this 996 culture, Jojo Liu, which is this work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Uh, and then they have this thing called China Speed. And in China, that is a really big deal, is to move very, very fast. And they move at lightning speed. It is hard to explain, even by Silicon Valley standards, how fast the Chinese tech industry moves. There is just no comparison. And I think the reaction in Nigeria to the OPEI shutdown was probably quite shocking because they're not accustomed to this. It's not making money, shut it down. There was no visibility for them to make money given the regulatory changes in Lagos, shut it down, move on, let's keep going. That is a very, very classic Chinese way of doing business. It is not, as Abu Bakr pointed out, something common in Nigeria and probably other parts of Africa as well. But in some ways, it's not a bad way of approaching things. Learn fast, adapt quickly, and move forward. And I think in some ways that is, there's not, there's some good lessons in that. Yes, I think, you know, the, the Chinese ICT sector's involvement in Africa might itself be an example of that. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, sure, yes, let's try it out. You know, okay, it's not working, we're closing it down. You know, that the very, very kind of fast, fast approach, but then also uh, an approach that, that's essentially open and, and doesn't have a lot of preconceived ideas about what, what, what Africa is and what it isn't. Um, and I think there is a big difference with, with Western stakeholders, you know, because a lot of Western tech companies are extremely risk averse about Africa and, and for that reason never engages with the continent. And that's one reason why Chinese tech companies are so dominant now. And again, let's just take a look at the landscape right now. In music, Boomplay has 62 million subscribers. That number is probably larger since the last time I checked compared to uh, Apple Music and Spotify. Nowhere else in the world does Spotify and Apple Music get crushed like that? Nowhere else. In the mobile phone business, uh, Techno and Transient brand of phones uh, dominate the market, crushing Samsung. And again, very few other places in the world does Samsung get crushed like that, much less Apple. 
uh, obviously in the telco hardware space, but then there's also in the services space. So Opay, Pompay, these are these, these 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 fintech services. We're also starting to see again last year, it hasn't happened this much this year, but Chinese venture capital firms starting to invest in non-Chinese companies. Uh, you know, so that in some ways is also a trend for us to keep an eye on. How do you think, and again, this is a hard question for me to ask you, but how do you think COVID will impact or will it impact this trend? I definitely think it will impact the trend, the trend um, and it will probably, like one of the impacts will probably be a kind of a, a short to medium term kind of slow down on the rollout of certain certain um, applications. For example, the way that, that um, Abu Bakr mentioned the impact of COVID on car hailing um, services in Nigeria. Um, but I don't know that it would necessarily affect it permanently you know kind of i think i think africa not, nothing is going to change the fact that africa has a very young population that that young population wants to be online and that there's lots of players in the world who want to tap into that market covid is not going to change that it might slow it down but you know but it, it doesn't change it fundamentally um and so i think the the issue i think rather is is which external partners have deep enough pockets to be able to ride the 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 short-term you know, kind of turbulence. Um, I think that's a, that's a big question. And then, if they don't, if they decide to come in later, whether those opportunities are still open by then. My guess is that we're going to see a consolidation of Chinese tech influence in Africa. That is the economic depression that is coming to most of the continent as a result of the COVID nineteen is going to discourage. Uh, tech companies from the United States, Europe, and Japan, because the profit margins just aren't going to be there. Right now in Africa, there are three major satellite TV providers. There's DSTV out of South Africa, there's Canad Plus, the French company, and there are Star Times. Potentially at the end of this COVID journey, uh, there won't be enough market for all three. And I could see, for example, Star Times gobbling up one. Again, that's pure speculation, not based in any fact of any kind, but it's representative of the kind of thinking that I think the Chinese approach at markets like Africa, because they see an opportunity to grow market share in this downturn. The second thing that I think is very important, Kobus, I'd like to get your take on this, is Africa is going to be increasingly important to companies like Huawei and ZTE because they're going to be shut out of the global north. That is one of the key trends that it seems to be happening. The Five Eyes countries are not going to be taking Huawei. Increasingly, countries like France, who are not even in the Five Eyes, Germany is now on the line. The United States campaign is now starting to show a lot of success with some of its European partners. So one of the things we can take away from this is that in the next five to 10 years, Huawei will not be a player or anywhere near as large a player in the global north. So places like Africa, where there is clearly no resistance or objection or concern about Huawei, seems like it will be more important, although the revenue potential is considerably less. Yes, the revenue potential is less, but it still is a market of 1.2 billion people. Um, you know, so so in that sense, it, um, you know, there, there, there is some potential, particularly the fact that it's also a market that's so ignored by the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, it, it, it'll be very interesting to see if, if we really see this kind of development of a, of a kind of a north-south split in tech um, and, and the kind of implications that that has for, for the general kind of digital culture in Africa. It'll be fascinating to see. Well, I just wonder if the United States is actually going to follow through on its threat that it will not deal with countries that use Huawei equipment. And if that's in fact the case, hard to imagine because there's a lot of countries out there that deal with Huawei equipment. But nonetheless, if they do follow through on that threat, that could be problematic for African countries. And again, if the United States does in fact cut the supply chain 
for Huawei on some of those key components and those critical components, that too could be uh, potentially problematic. Let's see what happens. This is an issue that we cover almost every day in our newsletter. Uh, so if you're interested in China-Africa issues and you do this for a living, you're either a journalist, an analyst, a scholar, or you're just really interested in the topic, uh, we'd love for you to join our community of readers. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast. We've had a number of people who have signed up using this promo code and we're very, very happy and we'll give you a big discount, 33% off, a third off the annual subscription rate. So go and check it out. That's a wonderful little present that we like to give our listeners who make it to the end of the program. And again, if you have any questions, you can email me directly at eric at chinaafricaproject.com or speak with Kobus, uh, Kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eolander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>